1: Hey everyone. This week, we are replaying some of our favorite episodes from the last year, episodes that seem even more important in retrospect. Today, I'm sharing a conversation from back in April. At the time, Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow had just gone viral for her striking response to being labeled a groomer by a Republican colleague. Going into midterms, a lot of Democrats are going to face the same choice McMorrow did this spring. They'll need to decide how hard to fight. All right, here we go. So, Senator McMorrow, you've been really, really busy. Do you feel like you have stepped off of the roller coaster yet? Oh, my goodness. No. Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow has been doing interviews nonstop since April 19th. That's when she tweeted out a video of herself. Thank you, Mr. President. In it, she is standing on the floor of the Michigan Senate, and she is delivering a speech calling out a Republican colleague for using the increasingly alarmist language of the modern conservative movement.
2: I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd district had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself.
1: This speech has more than 14 million views. So I sat on it for a while wondering
2: why me. And then I realized because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme. Because you. I read that the president called you. He did. uh, And I missed the call the first time uh, because I was putting my daughter to bed and didn't have my phone in the room, which is incredibly embarrassing, but he left a voicemail.
1: Well, did he literally leave a voicemail like, hey, it's President Biden? Oh,
2: yeah. An actual an actual voicemail and clarifying. He said, you know, hi, it's Joe Biden, uh, th-
1: the president, as if I wouldn't know. <laughs> Which was pretty funny. The president was calling McMorrow because the speech tapped into something for a lot of people, a brewing anger at conservative smear campaigns and a sense that McMorrow's words gave Democrats a template for calling those smears out you know, he just said, thank you. He, he said, you
2: said everything that needed to be said and you said it beautifully. And he kind of joked that he's been doing this a lot longer than I have and that it's, it's never been this bad. And I think that that's the moment that we're in. Are you getting calls from Republicans? I have not heard from any of my current Republican colleagues, not one, but we have been inundated with calls from, you know, Republicans in my district and from around the country and ex-staffers, you know, people who used to work in this space, who I think are really, really frustrated that this is where the current GOP is. I, I had a local Republican elected official text me and say,
1: this is not his party anymore. It shouldn't be about hate. I was a little surprised by something after you gave your speech. I was surprised by the way some analysts were processing what you said as a win. And the reason I was surprised by that is because I thought, with all due respect, what's been won? Yeah, no, that's fair. Do you feel like you've won? I mean,
2: you know, I'm really glad that the speech resonated, but... It's not going to mean anything unless a lot more people who are like me, you know, pretty comfortable (laughs) white suburban moms stand up and do the same thing, because this wouldn't keep happening if it wasn't a winning strategy.
1: You mean the culture war is a winning strategy? Yeah, the
2: culture war is a winning strategy. And I think it's really easy to motivate people with fear. And that's what's happening.
1: today on the show. Can a war of words help Democrats win? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. A funny thing about Mallory McMorrow's viral moment is that you're not going to hear the words that got her so angry in the first place. The Republican state senator who accused McMorrow of being a so-called groomer did it in an email, and she's kept pretty quiet since. But for background, it helps to acknowledge that there's a fierce battle going on for political control of Michigan right now. Republicans have run the show in the legislature for decades, and this year, Democrats actually have a chance to change that. So emotions are running pretty hot. And the state, it's seen as a kind of proving ground for the talking points of both parties. Anyway, Senator McMorrow says this war of words, it actually began with a prayer.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I want to say, too, like, I did not know that this this colleague and i had a beef before this we had a pretty cordial (laughs) relationship we had gone out for coffee before you know we're we're on different sides of the political spectrum but we didn't have a bad relationship by any means um but she gave an invocation to open session abba father we come to you today we have an invocation to
1: open with each session and a request for your guidance this is another state senator, Lana Tice. Another state senator, Lana Tice, yes. It was her turn to
2: give the invocation to open Senate session. You know, she started off and it was, it was a very dramatic country, delivery.
1: We're seeing in the news that our children are under attack. There are forces that desire things for them other than what their parents would have them see and hear and know. Dear Lord, I pray for your guidance in this chamber.
2: And a couple of colleagues and I looked at each other nervously, and three of us walked out in that moment, you know, quietly. In my head, the the misuse of prayer to really lob out a thinly veiled kind of attack that mimics the Florida don't say gay bill was just so offensive to me that I didn't feel that that was an appropriate use of what should be kind of a moment of intention setting
1: and and reminding us that we serve 10 million people of the state of Michigan. Did you mean this to be a thing or were you just like, okay, I know where this is going. Like, I don't need to stay.
2: Yeah. I mean, it was mostly, I hope that the person giving this notices and maybe thinks to themselves, hey, this was maybe not an appropriate use of, of this time, but we weren't anticipating it to be, you know, a huge protest, but I did, I tweeted that without repeating the, the other senator's words, I just want every kid in the state to know that whoever you are, you are seen and heard and, and welcome in Michigan. And, and I, my hunch is that that is what she took issue
1: with. Yeah, you calling Lana Tice out really seemed to bait her, I guess, is the only way to put it. She sent out this email to raise funds, basically saying you're an Internet troll And you want to groom and sexualize children.
2: Yeah. And it called me out by name. You know, it it said Senator Mallory McMorrow D. Snowflake. Uh, Ha ha. Right. Which the joke is kind of right. But anyway, but it accused me directly of grooming and supporting pedophilia and wanting eight year olds to believe that they were responsible for slavery. And I, my heart just sank we are not even running against each other. And for her to send out an email fundraising for herself with just these horrific baseless accusations about me was beyond the pale.
1: How'd you decide to give a speech?
2: I mean, I I had started getting calls on Monday morning last week of, of local reporters who wanted comment about this email and what I thought about it. And, and, I tried to stay focused on my job that day. I had a lot of things on my calendar. I had a lot of groups to meet with and and I I kept to that. But by the end of the day, I was giving my daughter a bath. She's one. She was laughing so much. She was so oblivious and I just started crying. And I wrote a lot of stuff down that night and decided I really wanted to give a public response, um, especially because part of her email accused me of being a social media troll. And I'm not.
1: Yeah. I wonder if you if you thought when you started writing like, oh, I'll do that thing. You write the letter and you don't send it.
2: Part of. Yeah. I, and I didn't want it to feel like what politics feels like too often, which is Democrats and Republicans are just slapping back and forth at each other. So when I started writing things down, there was a lot that felt like that. And
1: I got rid of that. Yeah, Your speech was really about you. Yeah. And it emphasized your kind of Cleaver family Qualities like your whiteness, your straightness, your Christianness, your suburbanness. Why was that important to you? So to me, you know, I, I
2: just sat in how bad I felt all day on Monday. And, you know, you know, grooming is befriending a child for the purpose of molesting them. I mean, it, it's horrific as an accusation. And just recognizing that however bad I felt for one day is how awful it must feel every day if you are a member of the lgbtq community if you're a parent of a, of a trans child and that is what you are being told every single day and we've seen this this trend starting in virginia and how glenn youngkin got elected of of the broader messaging of white suburban moms are really frustrated and that's how you know republicans are, are going to win so it's the combination of white suburban moms being kind of rallied together and Christianity being weaponized. You know, the the Senator Tice, the, the woman who sent the email about me, her Twitter bio says Christian life. And she has introduced legislation around CRT and banning the 1619 project and banning, you know, trans kids from playing on sports teams that match their gender identity. Even though we have a process in Michigan that has worked for a decade and there are maybe two kids per year that go through the process and apply for two kids in the entire state. So just to me, I, I am tired of seeing people like her and groups like Moms for Liberty that has formed and is kind of going after school boards around the country, claiming to speak in a unified voice for people like me when I know the vast majority of people in my community who who look like me who are not you know me- members of the marginalized communities don't feel this way at all and i really wanted to speak you know take my own identity back but speak to them to the other suburban white moms that i represent who do
1: not feel this way at all yeah that's it's interesting to hear you describe it that way um it's like you're saying i see you white suburban moms and i see your anger right now. But let me give you another place to put it.
2: Right. Well, and, you know, our Republican Party here in Michigan has hit back, you know, claiming that Democrats are against parental rights and and they're standing with parents against teachers and schools. And that, to me, is creating a wedge where there can't be one. So I think, you know, acknowledging that Yeah, moms, it has been really, really hard for the past few years when you have had to deal with school closures and balancing work and being at home with your kids all the time. I have gone through that. I had a baby during COVID. While you were a state senator, while I'm a state senator and trying to find childcare in the midst of a pandemic and, and having a full time job. I get it. I see you. And there needs to be another place to put your energy that isn't
1: targeting other people. One of the moments that really connected with me in your speech is when you talked about your own mother. You told this story about how growing up, she would take you to food pantries on Sundays. And it kind of got her into a little bit of trouble. Like her pastor called her out and was like, why aren't you in church? And you say the pastor also didn't particularly like that she was divorced. Why did you want to talk about your mom?
2: You know, Lana, who sent the email, she she's a mother. I'm a mother. And for a mom to accuse another mom of such vile, disgusting things as she did, you know, I, I really wanted to tell the story of this is how I was raised. You know, I, I know that the general idea of Republicans is that they're the party of family and faith and religion. And I was, too. You know, I had a mom who taught CCD and took me to soup kitchen. What is CCD?
1: You said that and I was like, I don't know what that is.
2: Yeah. So CCD is basically Sunday school, but in Catholic churches. So it's on Wednesday nights, but it's Sunday school. <laughs> Got it. But you know, that, that was the level. It wasn't just taking us to church. It's, she was, we were there on weekends and weeknights and choir practices. And, and I know a lot of people have similar backgrounds and it's exhausting to see the performative version of faith in Christianity, being dominated and owned by, by one party, frankly, um, and being used as if it gives cover to say, well, we are the moral authority and you are somehow different and other and you're less than and we can do all of these hurtful things to you.
1: After your speech went viral, Lana Tice, the woman who sent that original fundraising email, the one you're speaking out against, she kind of went to ground. like She deleted her Twitter. Did that feel like a kind of victory to you? No,
2: because she she also sent out another fundraising email that you know basically accused me of lying, saying that the speech sounded good if any of it was true. Hmm. She also she went on a local uh, capital podcast and really doubled and tripled down. They, you know, she was asked about why she gave this speech and why me. And she, I, I have had a bill um, since 2019 to prohibit the act of conversion therapy, which is you know the, the, the act of trying to change somebody from LGBTQ into somebody who is straight. It is widely discredited by the American Psychological Association, the Pediatric Association. I mean, it's passed in 13 states around the country under both Republicans and Democratic governors. Because it's just, A, impossible, scientifically not accurate, but also really damaging as a therapy practice. Um, So my bill would, if you're a licensed counselor in Michigan, that you would lose your license if you practice this on minors. She, in this podcast, said that that bill that I've introduced, she equated it to if somebody had anorexia and went to a counselor, that if my bill were to pass, that counselor would be legally required to tell the student, yes, you're fat, and to, to get them on a diet.
1: Like, take a look at anorexia if we're, if we're dealing with that. You have a 12-year-old girl who walks into the counselor. She is real thin. She comes in and she says to the counselor, I think I'm fat. That's what anorexia, that's the feeling that the person has, genuine heartfelt feeling that the person has with anorexia. With the affirmation that's required in this bill, if it were applied to anorexia, all they would be allowed to say is, you're right, you're overweight, let's figure out how to help you diet more. Can you imagine that mentality in this space? Senator Tyson. I can't. I want these children to be healthy. I want these children to be comfortable.
2: I really had a hard time listening to this, that she, she chairs the education committee in the state of Michigan. So she has a lot of power, a lot of power. She is the chief architect of education policy for every student going to school in the state of Michigan.
1: We'll be back after a quick break. I think part of the reason it's so interesting to talk to you about this viral moment you've had is because of your history as a politician. Like, you joined the Michigan State Senate in 2018, and you defeated a Republican to do that. And flipping seats is, like, what every Democrat wants to do right now. I'm sort of wondering, take me back. Like, why did you run for office in the first place?
2: I mean, I ran... (sighs)
1: In the in the wake of
2: 2016, I remember watching returns come in and getting texts from friends around the country. Um, I've lived in five states in total, so I've got I've got friends all over, who said, it's going to come down to Michigan and Michigan's going to save the country. Like it's going to be Detroit and Detroit is going to win and we're going to defeat Donald Trump and you know, he's not going to win. And that's not how you were sitting in Michigan at the time. I was sitting in Michigan. Yeah. At my house with, we had one friend over and we had like wings and beer and we were like, let's get this long national nightmare over and we can get back to normal. Like that's what it felt. Um, and, and then that didn't happen. And then there was a video that went viral a few days after the election of students Chanting Build That Wall and another student. And that was from Royal Oak Middle School, which is my polling place. (laughs) That broke something in me. Hmm. So I Googled how to run for office. (laughs) And really. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know. I had no idea how to do this. I, I went to the women's march in Detroit. When I went down there, what I found was so hopeful and wonderful i mean it was such a diverse group of women of all generations like grandparents parents kids we were all singing by the end of the afternoon so i exchanged phone numbers with people and started hosting like weekly political action parties at my house, like a Tupperware party, but we would write emails and postcards to our legislators and like figure out where we were <laughs> going to, and eventually found, um, Emerge America, which recruits and trains democratic women to run for office. They had a chapter in Michigan at the time. I spent six months learning how to run for office through that group thought that I might volunteer on Gretchen Whitmer's campaign because this space was new to me and I didn't feel qualified to do anything else but Jocelyn Benson, who is our current secretary of state, she, uh, had taught one of our emerge classes and she pulled me aside and said, Mallory, you've got a great career, just run for what you want to run for. What do you have to lose? Wow. Yeah. You know, when I ran for the first time, I'm relatively young. I'm, I'm 35 now. So I was, you know, recently married when I was running for the first time, didn't have any kids yet, but in my district, so it's the suburbs, uh, just North of Detroit. It's a lot of people who looked at me and might've been lifelong Republicans, but I had a lot of people say to me, you remind me a lot of my daughter who left and went to Chicago or Minneapolis or New York or wherever. Why why are you here? And what Hmm. can we do to bring my daughter back? (laughs) Frankly, it was like the, the message. So I talk a lot about economic development and how we need to attract and retain young people in the state for the purpose of growing businesses. And that really struck a chord with, with my district, who believe in economic development and growth and know that we can't do that if we are driving people out of the state.
1: Well, you defeated a Republican to get into office. The election you're in the middle of right now, because you have a primary in August, yeah. it's a little bit different. Michigan State Senate maps were just redrawn. And my understanding is that your district has changed which actually means you're running against another Democrat incumbent, like a lifelong Detroiter. Mm-hmm. And it, something clicked into place when I read about that because it made me realize, like, your challenge now is different. You need to stand out among Democrats, which is what this speech did.
2: Yeah, and, and I
1: don't... I I will
2: be honest, I don't even know that I was thinking about the speech. And I I have a long history of giving (laughs) not shy speeches. (laughs) So the way that I speak isn't new. I, I wasn't thinking about this in terms of my new district at all.
1: Michigan's at such an interesting point right now because there's a chance that Democrats gain real power in this next election. And you've said one of the things Democrats need to do if they're making the case is call out hatred and basically say, we have solutions here to the problems that are making you so angry. And I think that's true. But it strikes me you're in a complicated position because the way the state has been run for the last few years means that Democrats actually haven't been able to prove that they have solutions like Republicans control the committees. So Democratic solutions are just hard to implement. Do you feel that tension?
2: Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. So and, and it's it's more than just a few years. So the Senate that, that I serve in has been under Republican control since 1984. I wasn't even alive yet. We are having to make the case that there are solutions and, and frankly, asking people to give us a chance and say what has been run here in Michigan clearly isn't working. You know, roads are still a mess. And I know Republicans are going to love to point out that Governor Gretchen Whitmer ran on a platform of fix the damn roads, and they're going to say she hasn't done it. But Republicans control the budget. So we've tried, you know, we've offered up solutions and, you know, lowering corporate tax cuts to bring in new revenue and that hasn't gone through. So it's this strange process of working with people who I fundamentally believe got into government to, to break it from the inside. That's really frustrating to to me as somebody who got into this to make it work better. I've introduced 40 bills over my past three and a half years, and not one has ever even gotten a hearing. Whoa. And that's intentional. It's intentional so that when I run again, the message against me is, is that she's ineffective and she hasn't passed any bills. So I fundamentally believe we have real solutions to people's problems, but that people aren't even going to hear that unless we blunt the culture war that is getting people so riled up and angry. If if you are so fearful of other people, you're not going to want to talk about, you know, economic solutions to to our problems until we level and calm things down. So I think that's why we have to do both, you know, blunt the attack and then say, here's potential solutions. And we hope you give us a chance to prove them out.
1: Yeah, it's interesting listening to you talk because you have this position as a state senator, but in some ways, when I hear you, I hear you saying a speech like this is one of the few powers you have.
2: Exactly. This is one of the few powers that that I currently have.
1: You know, at the beginning, you said that you've gone to coffee with Lana Tice, like you know her and obviously she's a colleague. Do you feel like you're going to be able to work with her? No, no. <laughs> I, I, I was talking with my chief of staff
2: about this yesterday, and we've been asked a lot about this week. Is like, what is this going to mean for bipartisanship? I've never seen bipartisanship. So we're just at a point now, and this is sort of the argument that I'm trying to make, especially to people I know who are Republicans, is look, it's no longer the normal political reality between Democrats and Republicans. You have people who want the government to work and you have people who don't. Which one do you want in office?
1: Senator McMorrow, I'm really grateful for your time. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Mary. Mallory McMorrow is a Michigan State Senator, representing Grand Oak and the suburbs north of Detroit. When we spoke, it wasn't entirely clear how Senator McMorrow's speech was gonna impact her politically. Now we have a few answers. In the past couple of months, she's raised more than a million dollars for Michigan Democrats. She also won her primary election for Detroit's newly elected 8th District. She got more than twice as many votes as her Republican opponent. McMorrow is going to face Republican Brandon Ronald Simpson in the fall. And that's our show. This Best Of episode of What Next was produced by Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, and Carmel Del Shad, with a little help from Anna Rubinova, Sam Kim, and special thanks to Shana Roth. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. Our new production team includes Madeline Ducharme and a little help from Jared Downing and Anna Phillips. We'll have all new episodes next week.